Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Uh, I'm excited about opening up God's Word to you, but I'm a little bit nervous because there's two people in this audience this morning that are unusual. Um, one is the area director for Young Life, who I greatly respect and admire, um, David and Wendy Page, and then my counselor um, just popped in. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> I'll be uh, doing therapy with him after this. I'm kidding. Um, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. You are so great, unfathomable, majestic, holy, transcendent. Our little finite minds cannot begin to comprehend how incredible you are, how awesome you are. And you give us the grace to gather in your presence as your people this morning to worship, to be with you. And I ask in your grace and mercy that you would help us become aware as we open up the scriptures, seeking to be like Mary, sitting at your feet, listening to your words, that you would reveal yourself and your heart to us this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Breathe your life into us. Speak your word into us. Give us the fourth soil that is soft and moldable and pliable, that eagerly embraces your word because we love you and we need you. And the deepest longing of our hearts to the Holy Spirit is that we would live our lives delighting in your will, walking in your ways to the glory of your name. We pray all this in your majestic, beautiful, loving name. Amen. Not too long ago, I was looking for something to watch on Netflix and came across a movie called Rising Above, and one of the characters in the movie is a history teacher, teaches in a high school, and he would always enact moments of history. And he would use props and costumes to make the moment of history come alive. And in one particular scene, he is in a wooden boat that's on wheels, and it's a circular round classroom. And he's dressed up like George Washington. He has a fog machine going, so there's fog going on and on there. And he's re-encounting reenacting and telling the, his students about the courageous leadership of George Washington in the Revolutionary War. And in one particular scenario, what he's reenacting is the time that the British Army had the American Army um, trapped on Manhattan, and they needed to cross the East River to escape. But if they would, cross by boat, they'd have been plowed down by the, by the muskets, by the rifles. So George Washington prays and asks God for a miracle. And soon after, a mysterious fog comes in and gives them cover so that they are able to escape. He reenacts the moment of history. He, at, the, at the end of this, he jumps out of the boat like he does. He ends all of his classes, and he says this. Men and women, history is in the making. What will your history be? I love that. History is in the making. What will your history be? been thinking a lot about that and, and how our life is a history being made, a story that we are writing by the choices that we make. It's like taking a blank page every morning of our lives and we're co-writing our story with God, hopefully 
in partnership with God, that we're living our life in union with God, but we're still writing our own story by the choices that we make. What will your story be? What legacy will you live, will you leave with your story? Are you writing a history, a story that reflects and reveals God and His story? God's story in the Bible, I think, we're fairly familiar with how God is restoring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He's making all things right and good and new. How God is restoring people back to himself by delivering them from the bondage of death and sin and by giving people eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And his story is not just about what he's, in it, what he's doing in and through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection but what he's doing in and through the body of Christ, the church, and how we are called to be his hands and his feet and his voice, how God has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to be the body of Christ, to be his witnesses, to continue the mission of God the Father and God the Son. This morning I want to look with you at a passage that communicates to us what it looks like for us to live in partnership with God, to live in union with God, and to write our story that reflects his story. Three ways that he is leading us to be his faithful witnesses and continue the ministry of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1. If you heard the 20 verses read, there's so much in this text that's rich. But I just want to focus on a few thoughts of what it looks like for us to live on mission. If you have your Bibles or have your apps, let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among the wolves. The first thing that catches my eye when I'm reading this text is the first two words, after this. It's a continuation of what was happening before this verse, a continuation of the story of Christ raising up disciples to go and be his faithful witnesses. So turn with me and look at chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Let's look at the whole story in context. And notice there's going to be three different engagements, conversations with three different people, all centered around the theme, follow me. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Then Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Three different conversations, 
three different people he, he is talking to, but all three with the main idea of follow me and proclaim the kingdom of God. The first person, he says, follow me. And I says, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus comes back and says, I'm homeless and I live in poverty. Are you willing to do the same if I call you to do that? Or are, only, are you only going to follow me when it's convenient and comfortable? The second person says, let me go first bury my father. In that context, it doesn't mean his dad has already died. He's about to go to the funeral service. It means he wants to go back and live at home and wait for his father to die. And then when my father dies and we bury him, then I'll follow you. And Jesus is saying, following me means following me here and now, today, this moment in your life. Not after something happens or when something happens, Follow me today. Follow me means that we put Jesus and our allegiance to him above anything and anyone else, including our own family. That Jesus, my life is to do your will, to follow you wherever you lead me, to live my life according to your plans, not mine. The third person, he also gives a reason why he can't follow Jesus and it has to do with the family. And Jesus seems to interpret this as a way to hold on to his old life so he says, you cannot plow a field with the oxen and the plow, and you're always looking back. Because when you do that, you're not going to have a straight path. The way that you plow a field is that you keep your eyes ahead of you. You keep at a fixed point, whether a tree or a shrub, but you keep it at a fixed point, keeping your gaze ahead of you. That's what it means to follow me, is that you keep your gaze on me, not looking back, regretting, not looking back at your old life, but keeping your eyes on me. That's what discipleship is, is living in union with Jesus, following him, enjoying him, delighting in him, going wherever he calls us to go, doing whatever he wants us to say, doing whatever he wants us to do, saying whatever he wants us to say, because he is life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other path to fullness of life. But Jesus, he's what life is all about. Before we began talking about living a lifestyle of witnessing, it starts with that. Surrender. Surrender. Surrendering means that I surrender my life daily. I've got to do it every morning because it's so easy for me to take control over my life. Because basically life revolves around me and what I want. And it's so easy for me to have Jesus slip off the throne and me get right back on the throne. And I'm living life for my agenda, my dreams, my comfort. It's daily surrendering our life back to Jesus and following him. And following him means we're going to follow his word where he leads us. Surrender means that we're asking the Holy Spirit to come rule and reign and breathe his life into us and give us the grace and the motivation to follow Jesus and live in union with him. It's saying, Jesus, you are worthy of my all. I surrender my life to you. I focus on the cross and your death and resurrection that you died for me. That's how much you love me. And that you're God that created everything. How would I think that I'm going to be wiser to come up with my own plans of how to live my life than you? I love you. You're worthy of my all. And I want to go wherever you call me to go. When we surrender to Jesus, we release him to do his work in us and do his work through us. Living a life as a faithful disciple, living a life as a faithful witness starts with surrender. God, I'm yours. 
And then it moves and transitions to a word that's used three different times in this text. Verse 1, he says that he sent them. Verse 2, he says, pray for the Lord of the harvest, therefore to send out workers. And three, he says, go, I am sending you. In other words, a part of what it means to be a disciple is to recognize that we are sent by Jesus out into the world. We are sent by him, not the pastor, not the church, not some organization, but Jesus himself sends us out to be faithful witnesses. It means that we're communicating the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel, his death, his resurrection, his return, the good news that he wants a relationship with us, no matter how much we've messed up, and that he wants to give us eternal life and for us to live for an eternity forever, that he's building his kingdom on earth, and he wants us to be a part of that kingdom, and he invites everyone to be a part of that kingdom. We're called and we're sent out to be his witnesses. And when you look at the scriptures... When you look at the Gospels, you look at the book of Acts, you cannot separate discipleship from witnessing. Remember he calls the disciples, and it's found in Luke, Luke 5 and like Luke 4 and then other Gospels. He says, tells the four fishermen, when he first calls them, he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's what it means to follow Jesus. He's going to make us. He's going to transform us. He's going to empower us to become people that throw out our nets and invite people into the kingdom and then bring people into the eternal joy of knowing Jesus. The question is not, has Christ sent you and me? The question is, where has Jesus sent you and me? You may be thinking, the sent ones are really for, you know, Young Life staff, or really for pastors, or Steffi and Hunter about to go to Spain. That's, those are the ones that are sent out. But that's not biblical. We're all sent out. We're all empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. The question is, where has he sent you? Where is the harvest field that he's called you to labor in, to lovingly engage people and invite them to know Jesus? Your neighborhood? Your workplace? A social group? A school? an organization? Do you recognize that God has sovereignly sent you somewhere and he plants you in a community, he plants you in some particular place to be his loving, serving presence that not only is modeling the gospel, that we're being the gospel, but we're also communicating the good news, the gospel, and inviting people into a relationship with Christ to be as one of his disciples. If you don't have a place that you sense God's called you, ask him. Again, this is not me. This is the Spirit of God. This is the Scriptures. He wants to use you in great and mighty ways to make an eternal difference in people's lives. Ask him, Lord, where have you sent me? Where, maybe it's some, some place that was different in the past. Maybe it's some place now. But where have you sovereignly called me and placed me into the mission field? A particular people group? Ask him, and I promise he will show you. He wants to use you. Every Sunday at the end of Eucharist, our taking communion, we have this post-communion prayer, and it reads this, and now, Father, send us out to the work you've given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
we pray that this morning at the end of our worship gathering, worship service, please ask the Lord to make that real in your life. Lord, you have sent me out. Please help me understand what that looks like. There's one big barrier in my life, in this season of my life, where I'm struggling with this. And it has to do with I am surrounded 99% of the time by Christians. I talked to a friend of mine here and asked his input on this message, and he agreed that one of the biggest barriers for a lot of us is that we don't really have friendships. I don't mean acquaintances, but friendships with people who don't know Jesus. I spend the bulk of my time doing great things. I love running the fellows program. I love being on staff at this church. I love what we're doing. I love what God's doing here. But it's not an either or, it's a both and. And the Lord has been stirring within me the last six months to say, God, I've called you to be my witness. This was a part of your life that was really big, and it's not now. But I've not lost, you've not lost that call. So I've been in conversations with my wife, Becky, and with other people, and been praying about this. Lord, what does it look like for me here and now to be a faithful witness? Where have you called me to do that? And I don't mean treating people like a project. Please hear me on that. I don't mean we treat people like a project, and if they're not interested, I'm going to go move on to someone else, because I'm really just trying to get notches in my belt. I don't mean that. I mean that we're loving people the way Jesus Christ loved people. He loved the tax collectors. He loved the sinners. He loved the Pharisees. He loved the Sadducees. He loved people. And it wasn't like, if you're not interested, forget you and go somewhere else. We're talking about genuine, authentic friendships. That just for the sake of the well-being of that person, we're loving them. We're enjoying them. It's a mutual relationship of love and respect and care. We're going out and grabbing coffee with them or grabbing lunch with them or going to joint mongers and hearing a, 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 a band or the other stuff you do at joint mongers. <laughs> One of the greatest things we can do, though, is what Alan has been preaching to us for years, and it's radical hospitality. One of the greatest ways that we can be involved in loving people to Jesus today is having them over into our house for a meal. And just loving on them. Building that friendship. Something about a meal. Something about being in someone else's house that just breaks down the barriers and the walls. It's almost mystical. It's about having people over. And one thing that Judson talked to me about when we talked about this message was, he said, make sure to emphasize it's not just one-on-one witnessing. It is that, but it's also community. When you invite people into your house, they see how you interact with your spouse or your roommates. They see your kids and are able to enjoy them. They are able to taste and see the goodness of God by the way you love each other. Again, it's mysterious, but the presence of God is very real. And people walk out of your house saying, man, there's something different that I'm drawn to. I tasted something about love and forgiveness, the way they honored, the way they respected us, and they want to know our story. They care about us. They don't say, hey, how's your life going? You start sharing your problems, and they say, oh, my goodness, let's talk about something else, sports. You're boring me. They don't do that. They care about you and your story and their aches and their pains. But being sent out means that we're lovingly building relationships with people who don't know Jesus. It's not the way this text says about we go to town and go to a public square and publicly proclaim the gospel. That was that different culture, a different era. No TV, no internet. There was no, it was the way you would do it. If you had something to say, you'd go into a public square and communicate it, announce it. It's what happened all the time in that culture. But that's not our culture. That's not America. Our culture is not going to public squares and street preaching. Our, our culture means you lovingly build relationships 
two, three people you're hanging out with, you're working out with, you're having mom's morning out, you're, just, you're loving on and spending time with. That's, I believe, what it means for us to be his witnesses today. So, recap. What does it look like for us to live in God's story? To write our history that reflects God's history and what he's up to in this world by being faithful witnesses. It starts with surrender. Second, it begins realizing that we are sent out. We own that. The third thing I want to look at is, I'm keeping all these fancy alliteration S, supplication. <clears throat> and supplication or prayer is found in verse 2. And Jesus says, he tells them, the Lord of the, har the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Does something strike you as odd about that? Not about prayer, but what he asks us to pray for. It didn't hit me at first, but the more I thought about it is, he's not saying, and pray for the people that you're going to go be sharing with. It's not that that's not true. It's permeated all throughout scriptures that we do that. But he's saying, pray that more and more disciples will faithfully be my witness. What is Jesus praying for us as his church? Church of the Redeemer. That you and I will faithfully, as a church body and as individuals, will faithfully be going into the harvest field and being the gospel and sharing the gospel. How will they know if they don't hear? And how will they hear if no one proclaims to them the good news of the gospel? So I personally feel like that prayer is the foundation and the real work of witnessing. It's not either or, it's both and. But it's saturating our lives in prayer. When I was a new believer, I read a book by Ian e. Bounds called um, Prayer, and it's made a big impact on me. And this is one of the quotes that I've never been able to shake. What the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not more organizations or novel methods. The church needs people whom the Holy Spirit can use. People of prayer, mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but men and women. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. We don't need to look any further than the life of Jesus Christ, who is constantly saturating his life in prayer and tells us to pray unceasingly. A friend of mine um, was a missionary in Turkey for a number of years, and um, we would have him over at our house frequently, and uh, he would share about his ministry in Turkey, and that's where I spent a summer, and I thought I was going to be called there to go long term, partly to be under his leadership. He was that kind of a leader. <clears throat> and, and so he would share with us about their staff meetings and how they would often get together with this missionary organization, and they would pray for the people that they were engaged with, people they were in conversation with that didn't know Christ. He said, we would pray weekly for the names of the people we were engaged with, but there would be a particular time, a season, we would focus, the whole staff team would focus on praying for one particular person for a full week, and add, they would pray and fast for one particular person. He said, what would happen was that you'd see someone that would begin to have interest in Christ and the gospel. It was a Muslim, or 99%, 99.99% Muslim in this particular country. And he said, you begin to see their interests and the Lord was wooing them, and they were responding, but then all of a sudden they would plateau, or they would withdraw. He said, we knew what was going on. We knew that the enemy was doing everything he can 
to keep that person to eternal darkness and eternal condemnation. So we began praying and fasting. And he said many times we would see at the end of that time that the progression would come back and they'd come to faith. I don't mean that if we pray for someone, we're going to guarantee, we don't manipulate God, but prayer, God answers. It's saturating our life in prayers, praying for us as a church that God would raise us up and we would understand our mission field, our harvest field, and be faithfully building those relationships with people who don't know Jesus. It means that we're praying as a way of life for our neighbors, our coworkers, people in our family who don't know Christ. And I don't mean they have to be long prayers. I don't know about you, but I, I sometimes can be a perfectionist. And I place these burdens that are not from God. I, I gotta, if I'm going to pray for someone, I've got to pray 30 minutes for that person. I've got to pray in you know, a whole... You know, so it, that's not what he's talking about. When you read the early church fathers and the monastics, the desert fathers, often it was just 30-second prayers. It was just praying for a particular person for a short period. He said, you don't need to make it forever. Just pray short prayers according to the will of God. And so I'm praying, but it's praying unceasingly. It's praying constantly. So when the Lord begins to bring people into your life that you recognize they don't know Jesus, you begin praying for them. And I, I'm a uh, two practical ideas on how to do that. Take a three-by-five card, write out five people that don't know Jesus, or ask the Lord to give you friendship, and begin praying for those people. Just pray for them, put it in your Bible, pray during your devotional time. Lord, bring them to yourself. Lord, help me develop a relationship with trust with this person. Lord, just pray for them. And then begin praying as a way of life. And then notice that he says, um, go out in two-by-twos. I don't think witnessing is supposed to be an individual thing. It's having someone else that's in partnership with you. So pray with your spouse. Pray with your roommate for these people. Pray in your community group. Find someone in your workplace, in your neighborhood that are believers and can meet with you once a week or once every two weeks, just for 10, 15 minutes, however long, and just pray for your neighborhood. Pray for people that you've met. Pray for them by name to come to faith. But it's saturating our life in prayer. Fervently asking God to work. God, please rescue. Please redeem. Please speak light in the darkness. Please bring in the faith. I know you love them. I know you sent Christ to die for them. Please draw them to yourself. What does it look like for you and I to be faithful witnesses? To live in partnership with God, with what he's doing in this world, to make our history match God's history. Being faithful witnesses starts with surrender, it leads to realizing we are sent out. And then third, it leads to supplication. But don't forget, it involves going. It involves going with intentionality to build relationships, to love the way Christ loved, to accept the way Christ accepted, to learn their story, to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, and just enjoy them. And look for opportunities to share the gospel, to share your story. Becky and I lived in Hickory for 17 years, and we had two different sets of neighbors. And the first sets of neighbors were, were um, close to our age, and they had two children the same age as, as our children. So they, we were at their house all the time. They were at our house all the time, not just the kids, but the family, the parents. We'd have meals together, and we developed a really good friendship with them. They went to a mainline liberal church that we heard didn't really share the gospel. 
but we really enjoyed them and talked with them, and they, we could, you know, they knew I was a pastor, and they knew they were okay to, you know, on, on light surface to talk about God. But I kept looking for opportunities. We're out mowing the yard together or drinking a beer together. I kept looking for ways to try to engage in him to find out where he was and does he you know, the gospel. I kept looking, and nothing ever happened. I kept looking, and I didn't want to force it. didn't want to make it happen. So I finally, after three years, prayed, Lord, I think we have a good relationship. I think he knows that I love them. I think we're safe with each other. He shared with me some pretty significant things. I think he knows that I'm safe. But I've never, I, I feel like I need to not look for the opportunity, but make and create the opportunity. Will you please lead me? And so we went out to lunch. I invited him to lunch, knowing this is what I wanted to do, and I prayed about it and really felt like it was the right time. And so we sat down, and I said, after about halfway in the meal, I said, Mark, I said, you know that I'm, you know, that God means a lot to me, and that we really enjoy God in the church. And, um, but I've never really told you why. Can I, I share with you my story, the difference that God has made in my life? He said, yeah, I'd love to hear it. So I shared it in about five minutes. Side note, the very first time I ever shared my faith with my girlfriend in college, I wrote a 27-page letter. <laughs> 27 pages. Ex-girlfriend. Some of you know me well enough to know I can be long-winded. So I was trained, fortunately, by this organization how to keep it short, but really share from the heart. And I shared that with him, and I said, Mark, I said, do you, do you know God like that? I said, would, would you want to know God like that? And he said, yeah. He said, I, we, he said I, you know, I go to church and kind of know this stuff. And I said, well, can I share with you what the Bible says? Now, this works for me. I'm 58. I don't know, I, 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 there's different ways to share the gospel. But for me, this worked for our, in our age group, and, and being a more modernist. And I said, can I share with you what the Bible says about what, how we can know God and have eternal life and be forgiven? So I drew out a napkin following Alan Hawkins and drew out you know, the gospel analogy that, I, that really helped me. And I said at the end of this, I said, does that make sense? He said, yeah, it makes perfect sense. He said, where are you on this? He said, Dot, I'm just not quite ready to surrender yet. I said, that's fine. I said, I, I, I'm here for you. Would love to talk with you about it at any point. Did not feel the need to continue. Felt the need that this was the time to stop. I said, Mark, I love you, and I want you to know Christ like this. If you ever want to talk more, please let me know. You take the initiative to share the gospel, but you leave the results to God. It's not up to you to make it happen. It's not up to you to convert someone. It's up to God. But you do communicate to them what they need to know. But it's built upon earning the right to be heard. That's one reason why I love Young Life. That's their mantra, and it's good. It's building relationships of genuine love and trust and looking for those opportunities. And if you have a relationship you've had for a long time, it may be time to create that opportunity. Luke shows us what it looks like for us to be faithful witnesses, to be involved with what God is doing, to build his kingdom, to rescue people, to redeem people, to bring them into life to the full. And it first starts with you and I surrendering afresh. Lord, use me. I am yours. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm confused. But I want to take a step of faith. Show me with clarity what, that, what the next step is for me. Second, realizing we are being sent out. We own that. Third, we begin to pray. It's amazing when you begin to pray for someone how your heart is changed and you want that person to know the love of Jesus. And last, it means that we go. 
intentionally building those relationships and being faithful stewards and witnesses. History is in the making. What will your history be? It starts with a choice, a choice to surrender.